First Peter chapter 5. Passage of the scripture that we had read to us were wonderful. The first two from Galatians chapters 1 and 2 showing that our beloved brother Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, he is our apostle, was taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't go to Jerusalem to seminary. He didn't go to Peter. He didn't go to James. He didn't go to anyone. He wasn't taught by man. He didn't go to men. He was taught personally with the Lord Jesus Christ by three years at seminary in the deserts of Arabia by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we ought to keep the Lord's Supper as he received from the Lord, it wasn't because he was at the Last Supper. It's because he was in Arabia with the Lord who told him exactly how it was to be done. Just wonderful things if we read the Word of God. What an apostle we have. And I certify you, brethren. Is that pretty strong language by the apostle? I certify you, brethren, that I didn't get this gospel from men. I got it from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I lie not. This story that I'm telling you that I was taught by Jesus Christ and his revelation directly and personally, I lie not. And what glory there was that Saul of Tarsus, the greatest enemy of the church, became its greatest preacher. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Oh Lord, that, that was wonderful. First Peter chapter 5. We have three verses to cover. There's an amen that ended verse 11. And there's an amen that's going to end verse 14. And by the grace of God, I hope that you will not forget what was preached in the first service this morning. It is very dangerous, and maybe I shouldn't say anything about the difference between those two verses and these three verses, but these three verses are a postscript. Because he said amen, he gave his benediction in verse 11. He gave his concluding remark to comfort them about the negative things that he had warned about in those five chapters in verse 10. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are a postscript. It's like a P.S. Oh, by the way, I have sent this by Silvanus. Marcus, my son, wants to say something to you. This is the same gospel that Paul has taught you in the past. I hope that you will all kiss each other when you see each other. Peace be with you. It's his his postscript. And I'm not making light of it. It's the way the Word of God is written. The things that now follow are just little things that you would scribble at the end to tell who who was delivering it and what you thought of him and that Peter knew that he was highly regarded among the churches of Galatia. All of that is to say, do not forget what was preached this morning and let us bask in the God of all grace who has called us into eternal glory and after we have suffered a while and in the process of suffering, He will perfect us, establish us, strengthen us, and settle us And He deserves all glory and dominion forever and ever. I read now at verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the minutes that I have, and I thank you for helping me, and I'll help you. 
I don't want to overdrive the congregation. I could go much longer than the average person can listen. There is a, there is a measure of saturation and tiredness of listening, and I want to balance that at, at all times. I'm much shorter than I used to be. If you want to go back and listen to sermons preached 30 years ago, uh, you will find that I'm telling you the truth. But uh, let's, let's gather these things here, and I hope that I can share some exciting things with you that may make these words a little bit more meaningful because we love every word of God Amen. by Silvanus. Who in the world is Silvanus? He is Silas. Right. Silas and Silvanus are the same name. Jonathan, John are the same name. It's just a contraction for my name, Jonathan. There are Michaels and there are Mikes, but they're the same people. And there are, is Silvanus and there's Silas. When you go look up the 13 occurrences of Silas and the four occurrences of Silvanus, you'll find out that he was the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul on his second and subsequent evangelistic preaching trips. This is the same as Silas, the companion of Paul in his travels and joined in the introduction to several epistles. The name Silas is a contraction of the longer name Silvanus. As Paul's traveling and preaching companion, he surely visited the churches identified in chapter 1 and verse 1. And Nathan has already kindly and wisely introduced you to that verse, but let's go back and look at it. Chapter 1, verse 1 of this first epistle of Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers... What does the word stranger mean? Jewish converts. Because of what Austin read to us from Galatians chapter 2, that Peter's ministry was to the uncir- to the circumcision. These were Jews. They're called strangers because they're a long way from Israel. They're scattered among the Gentile nations. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are territories in central and western Turkey on a modern map. That's where Paul went. And Paul went there first with Barnabas, but then because Paul and Barnabas had a little falling out over a guy that's named later in these three verses, named Marcus, John Mark, the writer of our Gospel of Mark, Paul had to take Silas with him and Barnabas and Mark went off. But the Lord had further work to do on John Mark, and uh, Peter recognizes it here, and Paul recognizes it in a couple of different places. Back to 1 Peter chapter 5. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you. Silas traveled with Paul to those churches. Remember the setting. And this is so important to really appreciate these words right here as... Peter closes out this epistle. There were Jewish legalists that came out of Jerusalem. When we use the word Jewish legalist, we mean there were false teachers that came from Jerusalem that claimed the highest authority because they came from the starting point of Christianity that Moses' law was to be added to the the finished work of Jesus Christ and to the gospel that they, these Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. That is true legalism. Right. When somebody uses the word legalism or legalist because we're strict about following the Bible, they don't have a clue of what they're talking about. Right. Never have we ever said that someone gets to heaven by keeping the rules of the gospel the way we keep them. 
true legalism is you have to keep the law. That's why it's called legalism. It's a, it's a word outside the Bible, but the word law is not outside the Bible. And there were many Jewish false teachers that taught you needed to keep the law of Moses in addition to believing on Christ in order to be saved. And Paul had to fight them his entire ministry. So there were these Jews scattered throughout what we would call Turkey, those five provincial areas that are described there in one one that were constantly being badgered by these false teachers that they shouldn't forsake the law. How much law is taught in the five chapters of 1 Peter? <laughs> How much does he mention Moses? It is awesome. This is Peter. He's the, he's the Jewish Christian. He's the leader of preaching the gospel to Jewish Christians, to Jewish converts. He doesn't say a thing about the law. He doesn't say a thing about Moses. He doesn't say a thing about the temple because he is performing a very important task, and that is to certify and to guarantee that those people there had received the proper gospel from Paul. It's just It's apostolic confirmation of each other. And we believe that. That's why I had read to you Galatians 1 and 2, because Peter, James, and John confirmed that Paul had a true ministry, and that his gospel was the truth, and that he should go preach it to us Gentiles, and they in turn would preach it to the Jews. A faithful brother unto you. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you. Yes, they knew him. He was faithful to them. He wasn't faithful to Peter because Peter barely knew him. He just knew of him because he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. But these churches were able to send him because they had great confidence in Silas or Silvanus as one of Paul's most trusted colleagues. So he says the words, A faithful brother unto you. Because he was, I suppose. And he's not saying, I guess, or I'm highly doubtful of this subject, or I'm even partially doubtful of this subject, when he says the words, I suppose, if you were to de define the word suppose, it means to hold as a belief or opinion, to believe as a fact, to think, to be of that opinion. And so he believed to be a fact that Silas was a faithful brother to those churches in those five provinces. Peter doesn't doubt the faithfulness of Silvanus, but defers to the experience of the readers about his faithfulness. When Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us, was he wondering about the matter? I reckon. Absolutely not. I know for an absolute accounting fact that what we're going to get in heaven is far greater than anything that happens to us on earth. Make sure you understand these words and don't get confused. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose... I have written briefly. And you know, when you, it is a short little epistle. It's short little chapters. There's only five of them. And the subjects are great. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by grace, regeneration by the word of God, true discipleship, persecution by enemies, submission to civil government, submission to employers, submission in marriage. There's a lot in these little pages of Scripture. And he admits it. I wrote briefly. Because the purpose was not a treatise, it was just, Peter, would you put your signature, your seal, your stamp of approval on Paul's gospel to us? And this was weighty. Right. When this epistle got back, then those Jews 
that remember what a Jew would have to do to follow Christ. Circumcision no longer matters. I can go to church and have communion where 80% of the membership has never been circumcised. Have you, if you've read the Bible, you know that would bother Jews. And Paul was telling them it doesn't matter anymore. That was a sign of the old covenant. But they wanted to hear those words from a Jew that was a friend to Jews. Paul was a Jew, but Paul wasn't a friend to Jews by all appearances because he only preached to Gentiles. Remember later in Acts when he came to Jerusalem? The leadership there said, Paul, would you please take a Jewish vow on yourself? Because the people here think that everywhere you go, all you do is preach against everything that's Jewish. He said, sure, I'll do a vow. And so he went to the temple in his vow, and that's when he was caught by Jews out of Ephesus that recognized him. And that ended, you know, that ends the last six, seven, eight chapters of Acts. This was very weighty. And so here's Peter writing an epistle saying, the gospel that you stand in, the gospel that Paul preached to you, the gospel that you believe and were converted to, that just blew circumcision out the window and no need for the law of Moses for justification before God because it's all by His grace through Jesus Christ. It is the truth. That would have been weighty with them. Those Jews then would have felt more secure. Paul has taught it. Peter confirmed it. Amen. That's how the epistle ends. Uh, amen. I have written briefly, exhorting. Because it's a strong epistle. He's exhorting them to obedience and don't let anyone push them away from the truth. They're to resist the devil and stand steadfast in the truth that they've been blessed with it, that they've been born again by that truth, that they have the Word of God that, that abides forever, that uh, endureth forever. There in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1, all these wonderful things... He exhorted and testified that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Wherein ye stand. Where you are presently standing in the gospel that Paul preached to you, it is the true gospel of God. He exhorted them to it, and he testified as a witness that that gospel was the truth. You know, it's just, it's powerful, the apostolic confirmation of each other. I had these passages read to you for you to appreciate that Paul, after 14 years, went up to Jerusalem to get this. The right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John. James was so important as the Lord's brother. He was converted and made an apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12. He was the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was made the leading apostle in Jerusalem. He settled the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 by his understanding of the Scriptures, and he told them what they ought to do. It wasn't put up to a vote. James said, this is what the Holy Ghost has told us to do. That was James, the Lord's brother. There was John, the son of Zebedee, and there was Cephas, or Peter, and they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. We are all preaching the same gospel, brother. You go and preach to the Gentiles, the heathen, the nations, the uncircumcision. We'll preach to the circumcision. And by the way, when you go, don't forget to take care of the poor. And Paul said, that was easy. I already took care of the poor. If you read in Galatians chapter 2. So when we come to this verse, here's Silvanus, a traveling companion and preacher that would go with Paul a faithful brother to those churches and those believers back there as P- 
Peter knew, I have written briefly in these five chapters, but I have given you enough in these five chapters where I have exhorted you and where I have testified to you that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. Where they were, what they were already standing in because of Paul's efforts. I hope I've made that crystal clear. I love, you know, there's churches around Greenville that, that say they're of the apostolic faith, but they don't, they don't follow the apostles. We've got the apostolic gospel because we follow the apostles and we know that we are followers of Paul. Be very careful when you hear these words. Then we are followers of Jesus because Jesus was a Jew and he was under the old covenant. We're Gentiles and we're under the new covenant. Jesus died to put the old covenant out of business and the new covenant into practice. So his death terminated the old covenant. So he was never under the old covenant, I mean under the new covenant, while he was alive until the last supper when he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. We're Gentiles 2,000 years removed, but we are apostolic because we follow the apostles as they told us how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherein ye stand, that gospel that Paul preached to you, that you believed, that you followed with great consequences, that you're being persecuted for now, that you were baptized unto, and you've joined churches of the Gentiles in those five areas, you are in the right gospel. I exhort you and I've testified to you, though briefly, that that is the true gospel. Verse 13, the church that is at Babylon. Oh, now I've got somebody, I've got someone hanging on the wall back there that tells me my time is limited. But when I, I can get pretty excited about this one word right here. Amen. And maybe we ought to finish, and I'm not saying it's the best choice. Babylon has fallen. I didn't say it was the best choice. The church that is at Babylon. Well now, how could the church that was at Babylon, elected together with you, salute you? Because Peter was part of that church that was at Babylon. Where is Babylon? It is in the middle of Iraq. It's on the Euphrates River. It's 1,800 miles from Rome. The way the crow flies. It is a long ways away. And yet the Roman Catholics claim that Peter was the first pope. Here is a marvelous statement of Scripture. This is marvelous. Our fathers, which Brother Stephen shared with us for an entire year, 52 martyrs died at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church or governments influenced by the Roman Catholic Church or governments influenced by the daughters of the Roman Catholic Church. And the, the Lord has given us this one word in 1 Peter 5.13, Babylon. The church that is at Babylon. So that's where Peter went after he left Jerusalem. Peter was with a church with a Jewish membership in the place of the ancient city of Babylon. We trust every word of Scripture for value, and we remember what a good minister is supposed to do. He's supposed to remind the people of God of enemies, especially the Roman Catholic Church. There is so much of the error, so much error in practice and so much error in doctrine that has come into the true churches of Jesus Christ from the Roman Catholic Church. 
She is the mother of harlots. Those are other churches like herself. And she is the mother of abominations in the earth. We don't have a steeple. For those of you visiting us today, we hope you are not too disappointed that you will be able to come again, though we don't have a steeple. We don't have a steeple. I should probably leave that one alone before I go too far. Because Rome invented that steeple. That's a phallic symbol on top of the churches of Jesus Christ. And it stinks. It's profane. It's terrible. And that is one little tiny thing. The abominations that have crept into churches come from Rome. But Peter wasn't at Rome. Delight in every word of God, brethren. Do you delight in every word of God like this word Babylon as much as you delight in this short sentence? Drink ye all of it. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, drink ye all of it, what was He saying? Everyone at the Lord's Supper should partake of the wine. In a Catholic church, only the priest partakes of the wine. Or those chosen by Him in the past, it was strictly and only the priests drank the wine. Many of them were drunkards. Jesus headed that off 2,000 years ago. Drink ye all of it. Everyone is supposed to partake of the bread. Everyone partakes of the wine. I'm only mentioning it as one other example in the Bible. Does the Bible says, call no man father on earth? Why did Jesus say that? The Jews were calling each other master and rabbi. Why did he stick father in there? Because Catholics call their priest father. Do you love the word of God and every word of it? It's precious and Babylon is precious. Let God be true and every man a liar, especially every foul bird of the Babylonian brothel. I mean, the, the Roman brothel, which is Mystery Babylon brothel. The Catholic Encyclopedia claims that Peter reigned as Pope from 33 to 67 A.D. When Jesus died, Peter became the Pope. He ruled with the keys of the kingdom of heaven according to them. It's quite amazing that the first controversy was settled at Jerusalem by James, not by Peter. Peter was only a witness. James settled the matter in Acts chapter 15. Do you love every, I love the Word of God. I mentioned Stephen, and I hope I didn't get off track and totally fail that particular point. But those people that died at the hands of Rome and that died at governments influenced by Rome and that died at governments influenced by the daughters of Rome, they died for the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were opposed by the Roman Catholic Church, and the mystery of iniquity that was already beginning. They they held these points very carefully. And when they read the word Babylon over here, they knew they were comforted by the fact that Peter was not in Rome. Peter was not the apostle to the Roman church. Peter was not a bishop in Rome. It was Paul that did all that. And all these verses, though they seem to be very small to you, were meaningful and helpful to them to give them the courage to suffer death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. You know, the epistle of 1 Peter was written around 60 A.D. Peter should have been well set on the papal throne in Rome, don't you think? Since Jesus died around 30 A.D. You know, Paul, and remember when we went through Romans chapter 16, Romans 16 has that long list of names in which Paul commended and praised and greeted and saluted and commended and praised and greeted and saluted and said they were of note among the apostles. How many times did he mention Peter? None. None whatsoever. 
there's a little remnant woman in Revelation 12, 17 who fled into the mountains and barrenness of western England from the days of the Apostle Paul and was chased there by the, by the Roman Catholic Church and the pagan Romans to try to extinguish her from the earth, but the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed the, the army of water that went flowing after her, and we are part of that remnant to this day. And I hope you are thankful for that, that you enjoy that, that that excites you, and that would make it worthy to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 against that great monstrosity of a church in Revelation chapters 13 that was out to destroy us. And we heard about those martyrs. Oh, there's so much that could be said. Peter wasn't at Rome. Paul took care of Rome. Rome had problems in the church. Paul didn't write Peter and say, would you take care of those things over there? He wrote and told him to take care of them because Paul was the apostle that took care of the Roman church. Many more things could be said. How about elected together with you? The church that is at Babylon. I'm sorry that I've got to leave it. You know why I have to leave it. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you. God's elect are all around the world. 1,800 miles away from Turkey, or 1,500, 1,200 miles away from Turkey, since we're not talking about Rome, there were other elect saints. And we get to meet elect saints around the world because God's given us witty inventions of communication the world has never had before. We can connect with them so easily and they are God's elect. When we get to heaven, according to Revelation chapter 5, the songs say that God has redeemed us from every blood, every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every language, group of the earth. That's wonderful. You know, Arminians act like there's no election taught in the Bible. But we read the Bible and see election everywhere. And it's right here. The church that is at Babylon elected together with you. Peter did not describe these readers as electing. He described these readers as elected. Electing is them doing something of making a choice for Jesus. Being elected is God making a choice for them to be in Jesus. The choice is God's and it's His own will for us in Christ Jesus. And we know those churches, and it's a wonderful thing to believe in the doctrine of election and for God to make us part of His family by His choice, that He would have a family in the earth, that He would make us His children by adoption in Jesus Christ and promote us over the angels to where they are our servants and we are the family of God, as it's described in Ephesians three fourteen and 15. Saluteth you, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, we're all in Christ Jesus, saluteth you. The bond we have in Christ Jesus warrants us saluting one another in or out of the church when we meet those that are truly converted and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Our relationship in the family of God and the kingdom of Christ should trump our family and our friends because our blood bond that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than any other bond that we have. And so doth Marcus, my son. So he closes out that 13th verse. Mark sends his greetings to you as well. This Marcus is very likely, should be, John Mark, who was the daughter of Mary. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter was rescued from being in prison because he was about to be killed by Herod, 
Peter, when he gets out and is standing on the street, has a choice to make. Now, Jerusalem's a pretty big city. And the church was huge. Remember how huge the church was by Acts chapter 12? It was huge. Where did he go? He went to the house of Mary. Did Mary have anyone there? Mary was the mother of Mark, or John, or John Mark, or Marcus. Who was Mary's brother? Barnabas. So John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas was his uncle. These are things you get by reading the Acts of the Apostles and connecting the names together. And Marcus went on the first missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas. Acts chapter 13, they fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, and God said, send these two men to the Gentiles. They went to the Gentiles and they took John Mark with them. He went AWOL halfway through that trip, came back. And in Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas were going to go on their second preaching trip, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Can you figure out why? Do you know the real definition of nepotism? Favoritism to nephews. That's the real definition of nepotism. Favoritism to nephews. Barnabas wanted John Mark to go with them. Paul said, no way. That guy was unfaithful. He went AWOL on the first trip. I'm not going with them. And the contention was so sharp between them that they went separate ways. Barnabas and John Mark went off and Paul took Silas and was recommended by the churches to the grace of God to go and preach. And so, But later, the Apostle Paul would write in Colossians and Philemon, he would say that Mark is profitable to me for the ministry. Please send him. John Mark writes a gospel account. Tradition, This is when I say tradition now, I mean tradition of history, says that John Mark got his gospel not by being one of the twelve because he wasn't, but from Peter telling him about it. Because he was close to Peter, so close to Peter, that Peter refers to him as Marcus, my son. Remember, Peter had a tight relationship with Mary because he chose her house in Acts chapter 12. I don't want to spend any more time on that. There was a close relationship there. Peter gives his apostolic approval of Marcus as a son. Paul gave his apostolic approval of Marcus as profitable for the ministry. We have a gospel in his name. We have another gospel written by a man that wasn't an apostle. Luke. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. And so he learned about all those things from the apostle Paul. Verse 14, Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Greet ye one another. Brethren, our relationship is so great in Jesus Christ that we should want to greet and salute each other. The kiss of charity, as I've explained to you before in Romans chapter 16, we do not press that specific thing upon us because it was a social custom of their time, their generation, and their nations, and it is not of ours. How would we be able to do it in an act of charity since it would alarm and confuse most people if you walked up to them after this service and planted a kiss on them? We do not know whether guys should kiss girls, whether girls should kiss guys, whether we should kiss on the nose, the ears, the lips, or the neck. We don't know how long to hold the kiss. We don't know if the tongue should get involved. We don't know anything about it. And listen, I've got to, I'm, I'm cutting myself short, but you've heard it before, and it's all in the outline, and it will be published in the next few hours on our website. We look at this like we look at foot washing. It was a custom of that time. It was not done by the whole church. Kissing was a custom of that time. We hug each other, because that is a custom of our nation and of our generation. If we lived in Russia, 
You know where you kiss one side, then kiss the other side. We'd greet one another with a holy kiss. We'd greet one another with a kiss of charity. We would do it sincerely. We would do it affectionately. But it would be understood why we were doing it. There's a whole lot of reasons. A long list of reasons as to why when we look at this first sentence of verse 14, we understand it as a custom of society for them and not for us. And that being attached here in his PS, it's like when we write a letter and have X's and O's at the bottom, you know, kisses and hugs. Because that was their custom. We, when we greet each other, we embrace each other. You know, a handshake. That handshake between Peter, James, and John, and Paul, that was a handshake confirming the gospel. That is not an affectionate maneuver. Used car salesmen will shake your hand just before they rip you off. A handshake holds another person at arm's length. We don't want that barrier. We want to embrace and hug. And in our society, embracing and hugging is affectionate and it can be done holily and it's normal and no one gets confused by it. That's all I'll say on that sentence. It's been said before and it's all in our notes. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful benediction that Peter gives. Peace. He had warned of suffering and persecution for Christ in every chapter of the epistle, but he blesses them with peace. He had explained the purpose and value of their suffering for the Lord Christ. He had also explained the great glory and joy that would occur at Christ's coming. In spite of suffering, in spite of enemies, or in spite of temptations, Jesus has overcome the world. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. Now see, that's only part of the verse. Do you want to hear the whole verse? John 16 and verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The peace. Peace with God. Peace in our souls. Peace with each other in Christ Jesus. Everyone in Christ Jesus should have peace that passes understanding with God for the circumstances of this life, for the troubled souls that we get at times by thinking too much, and with each other. Peace be unto you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.